Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Warren Farrell. Warren, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. And this is an early experiment for me on doing video. So thank you for doing video. Thank you for suggesting it. And at the very end of our last conversation, we talked about my systemic change begins with, it used to say personal transformation. And because of you, I'd switch it to systemic change begins with personal change and had that parallel going. Mm-hmm. I didn't think to talk about this, but it really has changed that seeing that parallel structure has opened up a lot for me. So thank you for that, even though it's a, it was kind of a side thing at the end. You're very welcome. If, you know, if somebody's listening and is doing this type of writing and wants to see examples of that, in the Boy Crisis book, my process of writing is to sort of feel that they're not accurate in the culture and then check out whether I'm wrong or whether I have something, my intuition has something to contribute that is maybe a little bit of a positive contribution. And then I move from there into what is it that I have to contribute and I constantly experiment with, you know, is this right? Is that right? And so there may be 14, 15 sort of like experimental alleys that I go down to explore. And then I begin to develop sort of a general principle or theory or generalization about that. And that usually takes people into some depth. But the problem with depth is that it doesn't hang in people's minds very well, like a soundbite does. And so then I work on my soundbite. And the work on the soundbite is 90% of soundbites are not really fully accurate. And so I really work to make them fully accurate. And then I work to make sure that they have what we just talked about. If the word in the beginning is change, I create a different type of change so that people can hang on to those parallel words. The beat has to be very similar. You know, if you're in some type of rhythm and rhyme, that rhythm, you shouldn't have like four words in the first part of it and three words in the second or four words in the first and five words in the second. So there's a real just studying the things I have often bolded in the boy crisis and just looking at the way they're created. If you're a writer or you you wish to do that, that's sort of the evolution of the sound bites I do in the boy crisis. I have to say that hearing you say that again, I've realized that that's activated a part of my writing that normally I just think of the content alone. Yes, yes. But the structure of it, I'm not a poet, but this, the prose still, the structure still matters. Yes, and actually the poet part matters too. If you can say something in a poetic type of way that does have a little bit of airy fairy to you know in it, but it does lift people's spirit, that really does help. And it shouldn't be too often, but, you know, it's like something that's in the st- a store window. If there's a hundred things in the store window, nothing stands out, even if all nothing stands out, even if all hundred are beautiful. Mm-hmm. But if you create one beautiful piece of poetry or one soundbite and you have it surrounded by things that add to that or sort of highlight that, it's a very different impact and your poetry goes much, much further. But never underestimate the power of poetry in that limited type of way. Now, I'm not sure if I'm going to quote right. Is it boys who hurt or people who hurt, hurt others? Now, I haven't internalized it perfectly, but that certainly has resonated with me. Yes. Boys who hurt are hurt boys. Yeah. Boys who hurt are hurt boys. The same number of words. Not boys who hurt are psychologically damaged boys. That's often the case. Mm -hmm. Boys who hurt are often challenged by dad deprivation. That's also the case. But people do not tend to remember that as much as boys who are hurt are hurt boys because of that type of 
rhythm and the use of the same word again the second time around. You talked about listening last time a lot and how it seemed like that was, I don't want to say the core, but a major core of listening to listen, not to prepare your response. And I think we talked about Jonathan Heidel a bit, who also has a lot of that in his, it's hard. And it was really annoying when the person is clearly not doing it to me. Yes, absolutely. So totally true. So let's look at an example of what we're doing now. The process of being a person who contributes to your audience is someone who is self-listening. That is, I am beginning to listen to my possible responses in my own mind's eye as you are beginning to formulate a question. That's very productive for an interview. It leaves somebody with a quick, positive, you know, reasonably well-formed answer within the framework of the limitations of me. But if I take that same skill set home and um, I apply it to my wife and when she's talking or my children and they're talking and I'm self-listening, I'm listening to myself prepare a response. I'm listening to myself find a flaw in what they're saying. I'm listening to myself prepare something that I can say to help them. They don't feel heard. The first job of every listener is to be completely there for the person that is talking and to sort of see if in your mind's eye if you can begin to let them hear what you heard. So I would say, you know, say to you something along the lines like, you know, from what I'm hearing you say, Josh, is that sustainability is very important. It's very personal. It's something that you experimented with and grew with, and you had a, an instinct about it from when you were very young. Mm-hmm. And it's letting you know that I heard what you articulated about sustainability before I make my comments, even in my own mind's eye, about well, you know, I did sustainability at this time. I failed to do sustainability as effectively as I want to. Those would interest you and it would interest maybe your listening audience. But the first job for a relationship with you is to let you know what I heard you say. This is more important the more controversial the material is. If somebody is a Trump supporter and a Biden supporter is articulating what she or he feels is valuable about Biden and terrible about Trump, or vice versa, something that's uh, wonderful about Trump and terrible about Biden. The training is to completely absorb uh, when the Trump supporter is talking about why that Trump supporter feels that Trump is of such value. And when the person who's talking about why Trump is of such value or why Biden is of such value, then once they feel heard, you'll find them discovering things they didn't even know they were thinking and feeling. That is the goal of a great listener, is that you make the person feel that they're so heard that they become very emotionally secure, unafraid to sort of look inside themselves at a deeper level and articulate even more of what they were saying that they were cautious about articulating when they didn't think you were listening very well or they thought they were going to have to be confronted with an argument. This doesn't mean that there isn't time for a response. I teach couples communication courses around the country and have just a Zoom couples course um, on this issue. It's always important for there to be a time of response. But when you take these different ideas to personal criticisms, that's when you're most vulnerable. All human beings, the Achilles heel of human beings is our inability to hear personal criticism from a loved one, especially when it's given badly. 
And pretty much anybody who hears personal criticism from a loved one believes that any way that criticism was given was given badly. So that's sort of a, that's sort of redundant. And that's where we are biologically programmed to respond to personal criticism defensively, because historically and biologically, when somebody criticized us, another tribe, another um, kinship network, there was a fear that that criticism might be a sign of an enemy. And so the people who survived were the ones who got their defenses up immediately or killed the enemy before they got killed by the enemy. And so when your partner is criticizing you, you feel extremely vulnerable and you tend to respond from that biological heritage of having survived by becoming defensive. But in fact, it's you know the, the, the way to deepen love with your partner is to be able to know how to move into some mental mindsets that allow you to see that if you create a safe environment for your partner's most critical of you feelings, that your partner will feel secure with you, more loved by you, and therefore love you more. What I was expecting in this conversation was talking about men and boy issues in general, but this feels like a superset of that, of, I mean, human to human relationships. And I mean, as you're talking, I'm thinking, uh, I'm thinking a few things and I'm like, pay attention. But it's scary because if I'm listening to you, then what happens if you stop and I don't have anything to say because I was paying attention to you? Yes, yes. Well, that's why the qualities it takes to be successful at work are often in tension with the qualities it takes to be successful in love. Right, can you say it again? Yes, the qualities it takes to be successful at work are often in tension with the opposite of, not really the opposite of, but in tension with the qualities it takes to be successful in love. So at work, if I'm a CEO and you're um, coming to me with a proposal, let's say I'm a CEO of, of Boeing and you're an engineer coming to sell me a new engine that Boeing should use as next iteration of uh, aircraft, as a good CEO, I should be saying, okay, in my mind's eye, you know, is this the best possible new engine that we can adopt? And if so, how is our Chinese infrastructure set up to do that? And is there a competitor? And what's your history? What's your background? Are you credible? Did other people work with you? What are your references? All those things as a good CEO should be going on in my mind's eye. Mm -hmm. But I take that same mindset, that perfected cross-examination of you and critical thinking of you to my home, and I take that to my wife and children, they don't feel appreciative of when they're talking and saying, you know, gee, I had a terrible day at work and this happened, my boss sort of came down on me. And they're not appreciative of my saying in my mind's eye, oh, you know, you could have done this differently, you could have done that differently. Uh, what about this? What about that? They don't want to feel my attention going to solutions. When men create solutions for problems that women have in particular, it makes the woman feel that, you know, that you can figure out a solution in a few seconds and she hasn't been able to figure it out in her life. That doesn't make her feel honored. Mm -hmm. It makes her feel like condescended to and not really heard. You know, so when I'm working with CEOs, what I often have to explain and work with yeah, the CEO's response, to give the CEO some credit here, is, you know, when my wife is hurting, my instinct is I don't want my wife bleeding just to watch the bleeding. That is, you know, my job is to put the Band-Aid on it. My job is to put the gauze on it. My job is to make sure she's no longer bleeding. Mm -hmm. That's my instinct. That's my job. And so I have to explain to the CEO that listening is the gauze, mm -hmm. that listening is the Band-Aid 
that listening is the healing process and that fully letting her know that what you heard her say is of value. Sometimes I spend 45 minutes at night just listening to Liz, my wife. She's a founder of a um, PR firm and she runs into you know, lots of people <laughs> that are challenging mm-hmm. and she you know, will oftentimes talk for 40, 45 minutes. Now, during that period of time, I have quick instincts of about you know 30 different things I could suggest, but I get rid of those instincts quickly just to be there for her. And when she is, when she feels able to talk it all the way through and out, usually in the process, she just enormously relaxes from the, the tension that she felt built up during the day. And then she'll sometimes say, do you have any thoughts or do you have, you know, and when I'm at my best, which is not always, um, I say to her, the, um, you know, I do have a thought or two, but tell me if you have any thoughts first. And this shows a respect for her that is greater than the respect for her that is felt by me jumping in with my best solutions. That creates respect for me, but it doesn't create her feeling more respect for her. Sometimes when I'm arguing with someone, it's the last time I want to listen. And I feel like I have to consciously tell myself, make sure that they feel heard before I start trying to make them understand me. If I don't try to understand them, they're not going to try to understand me. But it's really hard. Does it get easier? I mean, it's gotten easier for me, but the more important it is, it tends to be the harder for me to do. Absolutely. So when you said the gauze, I was like, that's a mental shift that made me more effective at listening in these challenging times. Yes. Does it get easier for you? Are there other ways to look at it to make it easier? No, fortunately, everything that you practice gets easier for you. Your brain plasticity adjusts to different you know, patterns that, you know, now when I hear somebody sort of, I am not a Trump supporter. And, um, you know, and I hear somebody talk very positively about Trump, I can really listen. But if Trump had been, you know, viable in the political scene 30, 40 years ago, before I had, you know, begun my couples communication training, I would not have been able to listen. I have a PhD in political science. Mm-hmm. And so I would have been compiling, you know, a very effective answer. And that would have left, you know, the person that I'm talking with maybe be impressed with my, uh, the knowledge of my answer, but basically not feel at all heard. And so sometimes the more of an expert you are on something, mm-hmm. um, the less you're inclined to feel able to hear the other person. And so you, you asked, you implied at the beginning that it was sort of like we were starting on boy crisis issues and uh, of the boy crisis you know, book that I've written. And, you know, and now we're on listening. Mm-hmm. Here's the connection for me between those two. When I started doing the research for the boy crisis about 18 years ago, I looked all around the world and saw that uh, the boy crisis was happening in all 56 of the largest developed nations. And so I started asking myself, why developed nations? And I saw developed nations didn't have to worry so much about survival. So they gave an increased amount of permission for divorces. And so once permission in the society was allowed for divorces, then people began to evaluate whether they you know, were happy in their marriage. They didn't face the amount of social ostracism that they got a divorce from their parents or for, from neighbors and friends. And so the marriages were not so much, I got married, whatever decision I made, I'll learn to live with it for better or for worse. And now people are saying, you know, I'm not happy. And so I started to see that people were talking about, well, we should legislate so that there shouldn't be the permission for divorce because we need the family to stay together. 
And my attitude was, no, I don't want marriages to be legislated so there can't be divorces. Instead of legislation, I want communication. And so I watched the listening patterns of people and saw that Mm -hmm. virtually nobody listened to personal criticism effectively. Mm -hmm. And so I started seeing what there was that was missing in that process and realized that before you handle personal criticism, you have to go through a process of meditating into an altered state from your natural state of defensiveness. And when I got couples to do this, uh, they were able to fall in love again like they were at the beginning. And so instead of getting divorces, they stayed together, but they stayed together in a much happier place. And so the boy crisis was occurring for the most part from children of divorce because children of divorce very frequently had minimal amount of contact with their dads. They had less father involvement than they had before. They had less dad stability. And so uh, there are two things that I started to discover. One was that it's absolutely essential that after divorce, that mothers and fathers be equally involved with the children. That was clearly what worked best, so I found. But the second thing that worked best is not having to be divorced to begin with. And secondly, be happily married because you really felt heard by your partner. And third, being a role model for your children of good communication that would lead them to be happily married or happily in relationships and happy with their family. So I started developing all sorts of things like I discuss in the Boy Crisis book, like the family dinner night and how to conduct a family dinner night so it doesn't become a family dinner nightmare. And so that's the connection between communication that leads people to loving each other and be happily married versus getting a divorce and oftentimes losing dad involvement, which almost always, which made it much more likely, not almost always, but much more likely that the boy being raised with minimal, what I call the dad deprived boy, uh, that he would be uh, much more likely uh, to have problems in more than 50 different areas that I outlined in the Boy Crisis book. Thank you for making that connection. And it almost seems too simple of if you listen to people, then you'll hear their problems. Over the past couple of weeks, I've been preparing or you know, knowing that I'm going to have this conversation. I kept thinking, I'd really like to talk to Warren about these things. I'll mention two of them right off the bat, and maybe one or the other might be more interesting to you. One of them was a headline in The Guardian recently that for some reason showed up like multiple days in a row. And it was saying, why are suicides greater among Blacks? I forget if it was among Black boys or Blacks. And I'm sure you know the statistics better than I do, but I believe that if the difference between male-female versus the difference between one skin color and another skin color, I think the male-female difference is much greater. I could go on about that. But then the other one is a movie that I just happened to see online. It's called TFW No GF. So TFW is like internet speak. I didn't know this. It's for that feeling when, and no GF means no girlfriend. So it's the feeling you have when you have no girlfriend. Hmm. And I didn't know anything about it. I was just kind of intrigued by this odd title. And it studied what I think would be called incels. So these young men, I think roughly in their 20s, I think they're out of college, living in places where they just don't have much of a future. I think when most people hear incel, I think they think, oh, that person might explode at any moment. It's danger. And the director of the movie was female and was not, she doesn't show up in the movie. And you wouldn't know this. I I was kind of curious if it was male or female because I don't think the movie was 
either pro or con. It was, I think, just saying, like, let's let them say what they have to say. And going forward, I don't think they have much hope of things getting better. And one of the big things was how lonely they felt. Even the ones who were friends with each other, they spent all their time together. But the word pathetic comes to mind, but I don't mean it in a negative way. I just mean it evokes pathos. Yes, absolutely. Okay, let me do one at a time. Yeah. The first one on black boys. Black males do not commit suicide more than white males do. Black males get killed more than white males do, but they kill each other to a much greater degree. White males, especially middle-class white males, where the expectations of the parents are often greater than the performance of the boys, they tend to, and that's usually dad-deprived boys. So males are much more vulnerable to suicide than females are, that about a four-to-one ratio. So I'll break that down for a moment. At the age of nine, boys and girls commit suicide equally. They rarely commit suicide. Between the ages of 10 and 14, the male suicide rate is twice that of female suicide rate. Between the ages of 15 and 19, it is four times the rate of female suicide rate. Between the ages of 20 and 25, it is five to five and a half times the rate of the female suicide rate. So the male suicide rate particularly goes up during adolescence. However, it is not a black issue. It is a white issue. Black males kill each other more frequently. Black males are far more vulnerable in the society than white males are as a rule. But their vulnerability is not as a result of suicide. It's the result of homicide. And the expectations on black males are often less, especially if they're inner city black males. You know, their brother is more likely to be in prison than the average white male. And they're much, much, much more likely to have a lack of father involvement. 72% of black males grow up in homes in which there is minimal or no father involvement, what I call dad-deprived black males. 33% now of white males are in that position. When Moynihan in 1965, Daniel Patrick Moynihan was a U.S. Senator, anthropologist, and uh, Secretary of Labor under both Republican and Democratic administrations, he did something that is popularly called the Moynihan Report. It was a 1965 study of inner city crime and what caused it. And everybody was fearful of him doing that study, thinking that he was going to end up saying being black causes crime. Mm -hmm. And you know, the racism that was feared emanating from that was surrounding the culture at that time. It turns out his findings were quite different than that. He found that the children that became criminals were, first of all, males, not females, to a much greater degree. Mm -hmm. Number two, they were almost always males who grew up in dad-deprived families. But at the t in 1965, it was only 25% of males who grew up in dad-deprived families. Today, as you just heard me say, it's over 70%. Today, Caucasian males have a 33% likelihood of growing up in dad-deprived families. So the Caucasian males are more at risk today of dad deprivation than the black male or African-American male, depending on which era you're in and what you call it. Mm -hmm. The Caucasian male today is even more at risk from dad deprivation than the African-American or black male was in 1965. 
And so why is it that, you know, black males kill each other so much more frequently? They're more likely to be worried about survival issues. Their brother may be in prison. Mm -hmm. They may be exposed to drug dealing. When a black male does not have a father, he's far more vulnerable to feeling like a gang will make him feel like he has family. He has a unified group of people behind him or a drug dealer will make him feel like, you know, you're not doing well with your grades. You're not doing well with school. Everybody treats you like a loser. Here, deal these drugs. I'll pay you, you know, four times what you can get at your minimum wage job that you otherwise are getting. All right. You're much more likely to be seduced into that. Mm -hmm. Then you violate the territory of some other drug dealer and you end up not being able to express your feelings because basically killing other people with guns is a really destructive substitute for being able to share what's going on in your feeling level. And so you express with a gun what you can't express from your heart. And so black males are far more likely for those two reasons to kill each other. And of course, by, you know, getting in trouble, they're often picked up by the police. And the police, we often hear, you know, are more likely to shoot blacks. Well, that's sort of true and not true. They're really not more likely to shoot blacks per number of people stopped. But, you know, that's a tough statistic to take apart. But what is completely missed is that the police officer is 24 times as likely to kill a black or shoot a black male than a black female. So the real difference is not in the white versus black when you control for other variables. It's very similar among police uh, shootings. But the gap between the male versus the female being shot is enormously different, uh, 24 to 1 gap. And so one of the things that happens when we talk about when, for example, President Biden created a gender policy council, and the gender policy council is supposed to be within the framework of his belief that we we should be in favor of diversity and inclusiveness and equity. But the gender policy council does not include adult males, does not include fathers, does not include boys. So the most vulnerable population in the United States is the black male, but it does not include the black male, does include any males. The greatest reason for black male vulnerability is dad deprivation, but it doesn't include the gender policy council. The White House gender policy council does not include father involvement or blacks, uh, black males. And the other half of a black male is male that gets left out by the gender policy council. You can see, you can see this enormous perpetuation of discrimination against boys and men that even a president who claims that diversity and equity and inclusion are his primary sort of modalities, the exact opposite of that is being carried out in process. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act, and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. What is going on in the minds of the people in the council? 
are they thinking, well, look, they've had their say, now it's our turn? Or is it that the patriarchy is the problem and we have to fix that? And so if we we don't want part of the problem in here, we want part of the solution or? Yes, exactly. You know, I've had quite extensive contact with the chair of the Gender Policy Council trying to get this to be changed, a woman named Jen Klein. And her and almost all the progressive portion of the political left basically believes that we've lived forever in a world dominated by a patriarchy in which men made the rules to benefit men at the expense of women. And what's wrong with that thinking is, and and understand for the people who don't know my background, I was on the board of directors of the National Organization for Women in New York City. I believe I was the leading male spokesperson in the world for women's issues for many years. Mm. And part of my belief system is that we lived in a patriarchal world um, and dominated by men who made rules at the expense of women. I started also from the National Organization for Women in New York City, asked me to form some men's groups, men's consciousness raising groups, as they called them at the time. And so I started forming what ultimately became more than 300 consciousness raising groups. And I found men who were poor and unemployed to men like John Lennon, who joined the group, one of the groups I formed. All of them had stories that were very different than stories of being in a patriarchy. What I started to see was that when men had children, not when they got married, but when they had children, they often gave up the glint in their eye. Many, many men in the the groups that I formed, you know, were elementary school teachers. They loved being kids. They had a passion for teaching. But when they had their first child, especially if their wife was going to make the decision to be involved with the children full time, they had to leave elementary school teaching and become a principal. Very, very few teachers would prefer to become a principal or a superintendent. We as feminists looked at that and said, ah, you know, there's more females in education, but look, you know, the the hierarchy of superintendents of schools and principals, they're all males. Males are, you know, have the power. But in fact, if you looked at power as the ability to control your own life or be happy, these men were giving up what they loved to do. They were giving up the glint in their eye. They were giving up their passion. And virtually every musician that was in the men's groups I formed, once they had children, they gave up being musicians because unlike John Lennon, they weren't making livings from it like John Lennon was. And the John Lennon story was even more fascinating, but I'll get to that in a moment if you're interested. Or the artists or the writers. My own father would say to me when he saw that I looked like I was potentially thinking about becoming a writer, he would say, you know, Warren, I want to warn you that, you know, only about one in a hundred writers find publishers. And if you can't find a publisher, you'll never find a wife. And if you can't find a wife, it's not the best way to raise a family. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, basically stay away from writing because you're not going to be able to support your family doing that. It was not find what or discover what your passion is. It's discover what will make you responsible as a man, which is to giving up doing what you want to do in exchange for what you need to do. So this was very different from the belief that we lived in a patriarchal world in which men made rules to benefit men at the expense of women. Men were, once children came, they were sitting around tables with company, listening to their wives say, all right, with the child, do I want to work full time? Do I want to be involved with the children full time? Do I want to do some combination of both? If they lived in a middle class situation and they were married. The husbands were often saying, oh, I have three choices too. And the first choice is, you know, to work full time. Second choice is to work full time. And the third choice is to work full time. 
or if they were a working class man, work two jobs, or if they were executive, you know, go from being the regional manager of a company to the national manager. And that led to the father making more money, but it led also to the father's catch-22. The father's catch-22 being that the father learned that the way he could love his family is by being away from the love of his family. And most fathers' greatest joy is being with their children, not being away from their children. So all of these complexities were completely skipped over by the feminist movement and the progressive left and are today. So I was not able to communicate effectively with Jen Klein about this issue at all. From her perspective, you know, men rule the world and all women's issues will benefit men. Not there are men's issues that we need to investigate. There are boys' issues. There's issues of like why when there are divorces that fathers do not have an equal amount of time with divorces. There are false accusations of sexual harassment for complex reasons that we need to balance with understanding um, the hashtag Me Too perspectives. There has to be a hashtag Me Too dialogue, not just a hashtag Me Too monologue. So these are some of the misunderstandings that have prevented the progressive uh, left the quote progressive left and you know the both liberals and conservatives have their problems you know the word progressive example is extremely self-righteous term it suggests that anybody that doesn't agree with me is regressive the conservatives have the same problem they're patriots that suggests that anybody that disagrees with them is not patriotic and that just solidifies the inability of both the left and the right to hear each other. The politics you end up with is less important than the ability to hear the best intent of the people who disagree with you. In this particular conversation, I'm listening to what you're saying in terms of listening and -hmm. realizing that you're just listening. You're not just listening. But if I call myself progressive or I call myself patriotic, I'm imposing on the other. And you're talking to Jen, I forget the last name. Jen Clyde. It sounds like she knows the answer and she's not listening. I don't know. I, I'm not there. Correct. We're going to run out of time to get to the next topic. But I was talking to a friend of mine. So I've not spoken to this guy in 35 years. And I was going to visit the town where he's in. I was going to see him. We were just talking. And he, Okay. He said, I got a great job. It's not what I wanted to do in college. It wasn't the major that I was really going to do. And I thought, that sounds really familiar. And so I said to him, okay, you're making good living. You like it. But you know, is it what you really wanted to do? His answer was, that's interesting. I never thought about that. No one's ever asked me that. Absolutely. And he just kept saying, I'm providing for, he didn't say these words, but I heard I'm providing for my family. We don't have, you know, I'm getting good pay, putting the kid through private school. And that was it. But the dream, this was not the dream. I mean, he's happy. I, I don't want to take that away from him. From what I, you know, from what I understood, but there was something that was a passion that was extinguished, left behind. If you wish to see what men, what is in your dad's psyche, your brother's psyche, your own psyche, if you're a male, the men that you love psyche, if you're a female, take a look at the portion of the boy crisis book in which I talk about how I conduct the experiences in my workshops of helping you discover the glint in your father's eye and the unconscious process that led to most fathers giving up the glint in their eye related to work 
for the glint, the possible glint in their eye related to providing options for you that your father never had for himself. And how the great majority of men who have children, not men who don't have children, but men who have children, very frequently they, I'll give you a concrete example, a man that I met who was a cab driver in Santa Cruz. This was before Ubers came out. He was saying that when he was younger, he really wanted to be a writer and he thought that he was very gifted in that area. The teachers said the same thing. But when he had a child, he realized he had to give that dream up. He had not gotten published before that. And so he started driving a cab. But then he realized that the profit wasn't great enough for him to have his primary goal reach, which was to to have his daughter be the first person in their family to go to college. And so he drove 70 hours a week to be able to save up enough money for her to be able to go to college. He finally achieved his dream, exhausted. He did not like cab driving, he told me, but he was so proud of his daughter when she got into UCSC, University of California, Santa Cruz. Mm. And then she came home during the first holiday break and she had taken some women's studies courses and she said, you know, dad, you know, do you realize, you know, I, I really learned a lot in school. I'm very proud of what I've learned. You know, part of what I've learned is that you're part of the patriarchy, you know, that you are really an oppressor and you have to be, a, you know, conscious of both your whiteness, although he was really more Hispanic than white, but, you know, your non-African-American background and, you know, and the racism that's been part of your life. And he said, like my entire I just it just broke my heart. Here I was spending my literally spending my adult life doing something I hated to do for a different glint, which was to have my daughter, her life to be better than mine, so she wouldn't have to do something the equivalent of driving a cab. And what I got from that was a, being criticized for being an oppressor, uh, the last thing in the world that I hoped to be. And he said, I, from that point on, I just cut back the hours I was doing driving a cab and just said, basically, you know, the hell with it. And I fell into a pretty deep depression. Mm. In a more positive way, just take a look at how to tap into what was the glint in your father's eye when he was young, before he had you as a child, if you were, and allow your father to hear the gratitude you have for making the sacrifices he did to make your life better than his. And you'll begin to not only have a deeper connection with your dad, but also a deeper understanding of both, not just women's issues, but also men's issues. And with the listening process, make sure that when you share men's issues and boys' issues with people in your life that you love, that you listen more than you talk. This has been me listening about listening. You also made me think about an hour before this call, I was planning for a future guest. And your name came up because I was mentioning I was going to talk to you in, a, in like an hour. And he was like, he didn't know you. So I said, you wrote a book called The Boy Crisis. And one of the things was at the opening, if I remember right, the opening paragraphs of your book talk about how parents say prefer, they want to have a girl more than a boy because the girl has a better chance at a better life. And he was like, yeah, right. And I said, look it up. So he goes to Amazon and I don't recommend buying from Amazon, but I do recommend buying a book. But the free preview, and he's like, check one for Warren Farrell. I did not expect this. And and he was like, this makes me think. I don't know, I'm not going anywhere with this, but will everyone watching this go click and read the beginning of that book? 
the feedback I'm getting on the Boy Crisis book is that a lot of men and women who do commuting and do exercises in gyms and so on are really enjoying listening to the audible version of the book. I'm getting probably even more positive feedback about the audible version than the written version. So if you're into credibility check, then it's easier to do it in the written version because you can see the hundreds of footnotes in the back and check everything out. But if you're into sort of like a uh, I think a soothing listening experience. John Gray, the fellow who wrote Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, does the last uh, sixth of the book on ADHD and how to prevent it in a holistic, non-pharma type of way. And I have written the rest of the book on you know the different problems that boys face, uh, what solutions to those problems are, how to solve those problems in your home environment, how to work with your school system to solve them how to work with state legislators to solve them on a systemic type of way. But most important, really here, particularly how to set up family dinner nights so that you train your every member of your family to be able to listen to each other about the most controversial topics that you want. You'll find that the feedback I've gotten is that when Kids want to bring their electronics to the table, but when they're being heard at the table with what about what they believe, the electronics are not as interesting to them anymore that when anything can be discussed and they can have their perspectives not judged, interrupted, or criticized, but just heard first, and then have the parents be responding, their perspectives and the children be required to hear the parents and that that's a far more exciting dinner table conversation than even the electronics. Warren, it's painful for me to say we were out of time, but thank you very much. You're talking to you gets me thinking more than I think, I mean, as much as anybody else I can think of and in a direction that I wouldn't get otherwise. And it's tremendously valuable for me. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. You do listen extremely well. You ask good questions and um, are thoughtful. And if we do another show, I'll I'll deal with the incel issue uh, more profoundly as well. I'd love to have you back. Here we go. Bye-bye. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, There's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.